Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Welcome to another episode of Faith in Your Recovery. I'm here today with Dr. Rob Kelly, Ph.D. He's worked with thousands of people, including celebrities of film, music, and sports. He's lectured at many high-profile universities and hospitals on the subject of addiction and is recognized as a leading authority on addiction recovery methods that are changing lives worldwide. Welcome, Dr. Rob. Thank you so much, Randy. Great to be here. Wonderful to have you with us. Hey, let's start off. Go ahead and explain to the folks where that uh, you are in Texas, yes? Correct. I'm in San Antonio, Texas. But as you can tell by my accent, I'm not from Dallas. No, I'm from Manchester, United Kingdom, and I've been in Texas for around 15, 16 years. Okay, I they play a little football over there, soccer style football. Yes, sir. They do. Yeah, they have a big two, two big teams where I'm from, Manchester City, Manchester United. I uh, I'm a fan of them both before the bricks start throwing. So yeah, very very good. Oh, all right. Well, your bio describes you as an eccentric, no holds barred. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> Place your patient's first kind of guy that's the Gordon Ramsay of addiction of the addiction world. Explain that to us. Tell us your your version of how you see yourself. Well, I'm I'm kind of a no nonsense guy when it comes to addiction and uh, childhood trauma and behavioral um, because I think that uh, a lot of treatment centers have got it wrong and that you can't always love someone around as we boundaries. So I've been known to curse and I've been known to swear and, and throw tantrums when patients don't follow direction. So I think that's where it came from. And of course, I've been on Oprah, the doctors, I've been on all of them and they've all nicknamed me the Gordon Ramsay of addiction. So I kind of like it. It's, uh, it, it's not, it could be worse, that's for sure. So I'll take it any day. Do you think it's an accurate label? Yes, I love that label. All right, okay, I understand what it says and what you just had to say. Thank you. Uh, I understand you grew up as a musician. I did. I was on stage at the age of nine with my musical family. Um, so I played music all of my life. I play any instrument, literally any instrument. It's just something that's ingrained into my brain that I can do. And uh, I used to heavily be... Uh, I used to be a pro musician while going to college. But uh, these days, I'm actually sat in my office stroke recording studio. But it's very rarely do I pick a guitar up or play a drum or pick the reed instrument up because I'm so busy these days. So, yeah, I try and keep my hand in, but uh, not as often as I'd like. So what would you consider your favorite instrument? Um, I'd stick with my bass guitar, I think. It's what I, uh, it's what I master on. It's what I uh, session on many times. So we're going to stick with that, I think. 
Okay, okay. Uh, was picking up instruments, was getting into music, a family expectation, or was that a choice? Uh, you said you were like nine when you started on stage. So was that the, your choice at that time or family expectation? Okay, first of all, in 15 years of doing the television radio podcast, no one's ever asked me that question. What a great question. Awesome. Um, and I've just thought about it now. No, it wasn't really by choice. I mean, I, I love playing guitar because my uncle played, but the going on stage was kind of, I was expected to. Wow, just made me think that one for a second. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant, Randy. Well, good, good. That's that's one of my goals. I want to hit you with something you haven't had addressed. Yes. Keep it fresh for you as well as our folks. Uh, I read in your bio and some of your history, you played for some for some pretty big names. And uh, would you go ahead and share some of those with us, please? I played with uh, Elton John, David Bowie. Freddie Mercury, um, you know, that it goes on and on and on because I used to be a session musician at Abbey Road. So I would stand in when the bass player was sick from different uh, bands. Just so happens at that time I was there, they were the bands coming through the studio and recording. So I'd like to say that I'm really special and good, but I just think I was one of the guys that was spare and they dragged me in to play bass with, with them guys. Plus, you know, hundreds of more when I was there. Really enjoyed my time at Abbey Road. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, the next question people ask me, who is the best and the worst musicians you play with? Freddie Mercury was my best. We spent many a, an hour in the morning speaking philosophy. And then I've got to say with tongue-in-cheek, but still smiling, Elton John was probably the worst just because of the tantrums. So, yeah, it's a good time at Bio. Well, that sounds like an interesting time for you. About how long was that that you played with uh, <laughs> individuals? I would say late 70s, early 80s, maybe, around that time frame. So for, what, 10, 12 years you were playing there uh, at Abbey Road? Yes. Yeah. Um, definitely. I am contacting you uh, remotely here from Indiana. Ooh. So Abbey Road, I know a little bit about it only because I've read your history. Tell the folks what Abbey Road uh, said. Oh, excellent. Um, so Abbey Road, guys, is a recording studio uh, in London. And most famous people go there. So you've heard of the Beatles. They, they, they made Abbey Road famous because they did plenty of the albums there. But it, it was the main recording studio, the kind of elite recording studio to play at in England. All of the top bands that you could ever think of from the last, oh, I would say maybe 50 years, uh, I've played at Abbey Road. It's kind of the, the creme de la creme of the music world. So, yeah, it's got a famous uh, zebra crossing outside it, which uh, if you go down today, there's a picture of the Beatles uh, I'm not sure what album it is, where they're walking across this crossing. There's a famous picture. So you can go down there even today and you'll wait 20, 30 minutes around that uh, crossing because everybody keeps taking pictures of Certainly. them walking I've across the crossing. <laughs> I've seen the album cover. I've seen 
the nose of individuals yes. trying to get that accomplished and certainly a joke play on it here and there and whatnot. So, yeah, certainly a, a, an interesting place and had to be an interesting experience. So... I also understand as we get into your story here, you come from a family with a background in addiction, alcoholism mainly, correct? Correct, yeah, aunties and uncles, and eventually mom succumbed to alcoholism. So it was kind of in the family, but here's the the horrible part I hate about the, the history of alcoholism as a whole. Is first of all, going back to granddad's time, uh, you'll hear phrases like granddad liked to drink. Uh, in today's terms, layman terms, it was a chronic alcoholic. <laughs> but it only came over the last 40, 50 years when we started calling people, identifying people as alcoholics. But alcoholic uh, alcoholism as a whole is very misunderstood and underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed, I'm sorry. Uh, because of the actual what the disease is, what the disease is, and what it's not. So after doing my my, uh, my history check, uh, I went back three generations, and there was Go alcohol. Go ahead and explain there. to us how it's misunderstood, if you would. Well, you've often heard uh, alcoholism or addiction is it a disease? Is it not a disease? Alcoholics are born. Drug addicts are made. And what I mean by that is alcoholism is different to any other addiction in the world. Alcoholism is a predisposition passed down from generation to generation. We are allergic to the ethanol in alcohol. So there's the allergy straight away. There's three parts of the brain that differ from any other addiction in any other human being. And that's the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the basal ganglia. They're deformed in the alcoholic so what tends to happen is people go, oh, Jim is an alcoholic, he drinks a lot. You cannot drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic, but you can take enough drugs to become a drug addict because alcoholics are born this way. We're born with that gene. We're born with that deficiency along the line uh, where it's been passed down and passed down. Now, if you have been passed down uh, 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 the alcoholic gene and the three parts are different, uh, childhood trauma will be rife because everything that happens to us is a big T, it's all big trauma. And from that first drink, it's very unlikely you will ever be able to stop. The more you drink it, the more it gets worse. It's a progressive illness. Now, drug addiction is the guys that have addictive personality. So 90% of people, especially soccer moms that come to us with a heroin addiction, started in the doctor's office. 19%? No, 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 percent. considerably more. Yes. Okay, yes. so there again, that addiction is made, not predispositioned. Correct. Addiction is all. Now, people may argue with that. But before you do, you have to remember that uh, I was the leading researcher at Harvard University's uh, medical hospital, psychiatric hospital. Uh, called McLean Hospital. I've also studied neuroplasticity for the last 20 years and uh, uh, neuroscience um, and intricate workings of the brain when it comes to alcohol and drugs. And I've been in this injury for 30, 31 years with 8,000 patients and many tests and many uh, uh, organized uh, 
tests with people. Uh, and it's the reason we have a 97% success rate with our program. And the nearest one we found to us that's, is around 12%. That's an incredible figure in and of itself. How your colleague yes. view your, your understanding, your approach, your system, your recovery <laughs> efforts? Um, first of all, misunderstood, Randy. When I first came, I, I was I was uh, I was told to go away. It didn't exist. Neuroscience wasn't a thing. I was told that alcoholism or alcoholic is somebody who drinks too much alcohol, and and all of a sudden they tried to discredit me, and then they kind of smirked and laughed at my theory. And over the last ten years, uh, of course, the, the 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 finding of neuroplasticity, which means we can reroute and remold the brain. We thought it was hardwired. We didn't. We were saying this over and over again from our trials and research that we've done. Uh, so slowly but surely, people are coming around. So we, we run today a very concierge service. Um, we usually work with A-listers, movie stars, musicians, stuff like that. 75% of our work is done that, and the other 25% is complete pro bono, giving back to the community, like working class like me, and uh, grow up uh, paycheck to paycheck, and mom and dad didn't have any money. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely there. It's definitely proven. And we're definitely doing what we love because we that, love what we do. When you have a passion for the work you do, it's not even work, is it? it it's the joy of seeing no. it happen, seeing the experience change life. So how long were you an active alcoholic and what age did that begin? Uh, well, my recovery... My first recovery, there's been there's been relapses. The first recovery was 1988, so I was born in 1961. <clears throat> um, so I started really around 1718, where I crossed over from that um, heavy drinking or abusing alcohol. I crossed over to uh, drinking alcoholically. So all of a sudden, quantities didn't matter. Times or days didn't matter. What the alcohol didn't matter. I just needed that into my system every single day like every single day. And there were mornings, most mornings, I'd have to get up and start with uh, a bottle, small bottle of vodka just to get me up and going out the door. So towards the end, I was drinking 24 hours a day. I never got, people say to me, what's your hangover like? And I've got to be honest, and this isn't a joke. I never have, I never had hangovers because I was never sober for 12 years. <laughs> wow. Uh, as you look back, you've, You've obviously come much farther than uh, you even cared about coming at that time. What was it that, what were some of your big losses during that time, of the, the steady drinking? Wow, Frankie, good questions, my good man. I've never been asked that either, not directly like that. But losses apart from financially, which must have been millions, uh, I lost my children. They, they, uh, the authorities took my children off me uh, with the police and the uh, childhood services and child protection services. So they took me I'm off me. My youngest daughter was one. It's 30 years on. I've never seen that daughter ever since that day. So and then my eldest <clears throat> was three to four years old when this happened. And only four years ago did she get in touch. So again, a strange for 28 20, my math is horrible, 27 years. 
So that was the biggest loss. Wives, houses, cars, parents won't speak to me. Brother still doesn't speak to me 30 odd years on. And I've just reunited with my sister about four years ago. So all them losses, the biggest loss in the world was, was my children. You know, there was, was my children. And uh, I knew that God had me and I knew that God would reunite when ready. I always believed in that, Randy, always believed in it. And I just kept working with people, and, you know, for the first 10 years I got sober, I was just going around the country with my big book, just, you know, teaching people about God, about recovery, about, you know, alcoholism and addiction and, and stuff like this. So it was, uh, it was quite a harrowing time, which took me a lot to get over. I had to go back to the scene of the crimes, uh, my childhood trauma. I need to clear that up. But something amazing happened four years ago. My daughter texted me and uh, messaged me in the middle of the night it was 9 o'clock UK. It was 3, PM, uh, 3 a.m. Uh, US time. And it read, hey, Dad, I've just seen you on TV. I want you to come over. I want to meet you. And I have a surprise for you. That's all she said. And, of course, I woke up blurry-eyed at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was looking at it. And, and I was trying to say, is that Charlie? Because we call her Charlie. Her name's Charlotte. And I woke my wife up. And I was like, tell me who that is. Tell me who that is. She said, oh, my God, it's your daughter. Oh, my goodness. I We texted back and forth. And then we called her. And then within hours, we had a plane booked to the UK. We flew over there. We stayed over in a hotel around the corner from her house. We walked to her house on that morning. Supposed to be there for nine. We got there about five till. When I stood outside with my wife, uh, my current wife, I just went to pieces. It was just all in bad memories came back of not being there for them. What a dad I was. I didn't deserve this. You know, all the stuff that, that still you know, tugs at my heartstring, but she opened the door real quick without us knocking, which surprised me. But we fell into each other's arms. We cried. We laughed for about 10 minutes. And then she took me into her front room and she handed me my three-month-old granddaughter. And right there and then, Randy, I knew I was doing something right. <laughs> I'm ready to cry along with you here. I've been choked up myself. I love that visual that you just painted. Out of the darkness uh, to the door, there you not only get a meet for an embrace, but then that three-month-old granddaughter. What is the granddaughter's name, may I ask? Alice. Alice. Alice is the name, yeah. So she's around four now. She's going to school and... She's doing really well, and she's really took to her uh, music. She plays several instruments. She speaks two languages, and she's only four, uh, which is brilliant. So, yeah, me and my daughter. Well, my daughter, when I went over there and this happened, she said oh, she wanted to go back to school and learn what I do, but she was interested in NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. So we paid for her to go back to school for a three-year course, and as of about... 11 months ago, she she would open my Manchester office and was my lead therapist as of about nine months ago, 10 months ago. So we speak every day, of course, both professionally. I call her, speak to Alice. That is just awesome. Amazing. Uh, you may mention God's play in this earlier now. I forget exactly how you said it, but how he's got this. And in due time, the other relationships will be restored. About the moment, your lights on moment moved you out of the darkness toward uh, recovery. 
So um, it was one Sunday morning, uh, Monday morning, Sunday night, about 3 a.m., 2, 3 a.m., um, just coming out of a blackout and walking around the factories and office blocks. There's no houses or anything. This is after seven suicide attempts. On, on two, two occasions, it worked. I died and they brought me back to life on the side of a rainy, smelly, dirty Manchester road. Uh, it was all the losses. It was all the fights. It was a loss of weight, loss of my teeth from fighting. I was done. I dropped down to my hands, hands and knees as a non-believer because I was molested by my priest. So I didn't believe in religion. <clears throat> but I, I fell down to my hands and knees. And I'd been on the streets for 14 months. And I wasn't crying because uh, I'd lost my children or my wife or everything I had. I was sobbing that morning because it was the first time I realized that I couldn't stop drinking alcohol. I looked up to the sky and I said these words, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And about 30 seconds later, this guy walked around the corner. He had a little Bible in his hand. He'd missed his last bus home from Bible study. He'd been walking for two hours. He took a shortcut through the offices that he's never taken before and he came across me. When I met him, he took me back to the house and he, he said, you can stay for as long as you want. We'll get you in a halfway house, blah, blah, blah. But you can stay as long as you want, as long as you come to this 12-step meeting, which I hated, 12-step meeting. But I went there and joined the meeting. Uh, a guy called John shared. He said, my name's John. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I've never heard that word before. So he talked amazing stuff. So after the meeting, I went over to him and said, will you sponsor me? And he said, no. But he said, I will be your spiritual advisor for a period of 12 weeks. During that 12 weeks, I walked to his house every Wednesday evening. I left Derek's house at six. I think I got there for seven. I couldn't go. If I, if I was downstairs at five till I had to wait there until seven and walk up. Strange. I worked till eight. And if it was halfway through, so at one minute to wait, he'd walk me to the door and I'd leave. And I walked home and got home at nine. I did that 12 times every single Wednesday. He took me through the steps, talked about God. He talked about spiritual awakening. He talked about my life would change. He talks about all this stuff. And on the last night that I left him, he said, Rob, be blessed that your life will change from tomorrow. And I said, that's ridiculous because I'm in Derek's house in, in the spare room or basement. I have a blow-up mattress. Nobody in the world knows I'm there. Darn it. The next morning, Derek come home halfway through the day and he said, hey, the guy who sweeps the floor at the factory has just resigned. Do you want his job? And I went, wow, yeah. Didn't even think about what Jonas said. That turned into a full-time job in a couple of days because I'm funny and everyone likes me. So when I got my first paycheck two weeks later, uh, I went to the local gas station and I bought a little tiny teddy bear, that's all I could afford, and a card. And I wrote in the card, thank you, John, for introducing me to God who took the compulsion to drink away. I went back to his house and when I got there, the place looked derelict, it was empty. I knocked on the door, waited for him. Next door neighbor popped her head out. He says, can I help you? And I said, can you tell me where John's moved to? And she said, there's no John. There's nobody. I've been here three months. There's been nobody in that apartment. So I let her close the door and I knocked on the left-hand door, the apartment next door, and I knocked on a bit hard now because I'm confused. And this big guy comes to the door. What do you want? I said, well, where's, where's John moved to? Where's he? he said, John, what are you talking about? I said, the guy next door to you, your neighbor. And he went on to tell me that flat, that apartment was derelict and that there was no floor in the apartment. And if I walked in, I'd fall down. It's just, you can't go in there. It's, it's, you know, used to be red tape over it, which I'm confused now because I've been there 12 times before. So I goes back to the meeting the next day. 
And the chairman goes, hey, Rob, you're back. Thank goodness for that. And I said, is John been coming here? And he said, John, John who? I said, the guy has to sponsor me. And he says, I don't know. I said, we were over near the coffee machine talking for about 10 minutes. And he said, and I quote, Rob, you were over near the coffee machine speaking to yourself. We've never found that man. But he, but he told me that God told him, I guarantee that people can recover 100%. And that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. You know, you know I won't tell that, that story, Randy, for about 15 years. I would never tell that story because I knew people think I was insane. But my work that I do, about 90% of it comes from what John taught me. 2% comes from college. And the, the rest of the percentages goes down to being on the streets. That's where my program is based. How, your personal thoughts, how do you explain that? I know you don't need to, but I'd like to ask you, how do you well, well, when I started to uh, get wealthy, you know, because I was working hard, um, I hired a, the best private detective in Manchester, England, and I had him try and get John and he couldn't find him. The work I've done and the miracles I've seen and the, the near deaths I've gone through, ever, even up until about six months ago, when they overdosed me in the hospital and killed me, uh, it has to be an angel. And I never believed in angels. My mom did, but I never believed it. But I cannot put it down to anything. I have had two experiences in my life to where I knew it was an angel. Uh, I saw the lady no one else did walking through the halls of the hospital and uh, asked me to go see her sister on a given floor. I went to visit that sister, and they told me, we're all here. Her family's here. We don't have another sister. And uh, indeed, I'd spoken to wow. her downstairs, and uh, so I, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm shaking on the inside, listening, and I believe with all my heart because I've been in a similar place. Uh, so, I, I'm trying to. Th oh yes, the I read in one of your uh, one of the articles about you. You were. Staggering around, you were waiting for the liquor store to open. You went in that next morning, and you reached for the bottle. Uh, I'll let you story, <clears throat> please. Yeah, this was our whole moment with Derek got me off the streets. But before I was off the streets, my neuroscience started with exactly what I'm going to tell you now. So I'm outside a liquor store. He's also a news agent, and uh, he can't sell alcohol till ten. Licensing. But I'm there at 5.30, I'm sweating, I've got shorts on and a string vest and a pair of flip-flops. It's snowing, it's below zero, and I'm sweating profusely, and I'm going into what they call the DTs, valerium tremors, which basically means in layman's terms, if I don't get any alcohol in my body in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to die, or they'll get me to hospital in time. So I'm really desperate. I walked in this morning, he lets me in quietly, I walk in, he locks the door behind him because he knows me and he knows I suffer. And I need my alcohol. I could put my, I was shaking. I couldn't even speak. I was shaking. My head was banging, sweating. I put my 10 pound on the counter and he put the bottle on for whatever reason this moment. I'd reach for the bottle and I put my arm around the handle of the bottle and everything stopped. The sweats, the hurting, the headaches, the shaking, everything changed instantly. I remember holding the bottle and I looked at the shopkeeper and I looked down at the bottle and I went, oh my God, 
it's not the alcohol. And that's what put me onto the neuroscience behind it. Alcohol has 1% to do with alcoholism, the same with drug addiction. It's not the problem. I have a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. You made a comment, one of your phrases, I forget exactly how it went, but we don't help me out with something like it's not about the drinking, it's about the thinking. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a drinking problem, I have a thinking problem. That's exactly what it is, it's not the alcohol. You know, uh, alcoholics are allergic to the ethanol alcohol, that's true. Uh, but it's it's all about the mind and the brain and, and the past experiences and the childhood trauma is 90% of it. Uh, so we can fully recover once we know this. Uh, rewiring of the brain, neuroplasticity, and redirects of neural pathways, thought plans, uh, can relieve the alcoholism uh, once it's understood and treated. The same with drug addiction. So there are a, there's a huge neuroscience side to this when you have to understand a couple of parts of the brain Parts uh, differ from other brains, and that we do recover from the illness. We can go on and live our life to the Go ahead and talk to us a little bit about trauma. You keep referring to it as the gateway. Uh, I have always believed you hear over and over that alcohol or marijuana are gateway drugs. I believe trauma is the gateway to the gateway. Uh, Well, you're talking my language now, Randy. You know, uh, marijuana isn't the gateway drug. Childhood trauma is the gateway drug. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, So what happens is, especially alcoholics, they're more sensitive, more likely to get hurt than other people. And we hear things different. We're on a fight or flight all of the time. That's, That's the way our brain and mind and central nervous system works. So me and my brother, for instance, was stood on the kitchen table one day, and my mom walked in. And we weren't supposed to be on the kitchen table. And she says to both of us at the same time, hey, get down from the table, you idiots. Dad's going to find you. Something like that. My brother jumped down and I freeze. You see what I've heard? Get out of that table, you stupid idiot. And when when we did some trials and tests around this, most of the alcoholics got, oh, my God, I heard things different. And I'm like, correct. We have to find out. So childhood trauma is not what you think it is. Of course, it's a crash. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship. Mom and dad divorcing. It's all of the above. But therapists often say there's big T's and small T's. In the addiction world, that's not true. Everything's a huge trauma. So here's, here's one that, that got me for years and years and years and, and eventually led to a suicide attempt was this phrase from my mother, Robert. How many times have I told you you can't go to college? You're like, your brother, you're too stupid. That was a childhood trauma from there. And, and of course, hundreds of other stuff. So what we do in childhood trauma is we take it. And because we're in the household at the time, we believe that to be the norm. So our feelings are hurt and, you know, we're, we're told to shut up and, and all this stuff. So we take that on, the molestation, the abuse, the verbal abuse, watching mom and dad fight, watching dad, the alcoholic, come on. You know, this is, you learn certain things as, as kids with the trauma. If dad's an alcoholic and drunk and he comes home most nights and he's drunk and he hits mom and there's a fight, the, the child, his first, his first listen, his first sign of anything is the key in the door from dad. If it wiggles around the door trying to get it in, they know to run and hide because it's going to be a violent night. If it goes straight in, they, they, they can stay because that's going to be in a happy mood. So what happens to that, let's say, daughter, she sees this going on many, many times. 
She thinks this is the norm. So the, the mind is energy and the brain is matter, mind over matter. Okay, so she sees this going on. So with the energy she creates and the normal life that she thinks it is, she goes out and she attracts the guy that ends up being alcoholic and beating her or heavy drinker and beating her because that is her comfort zone to the extent that if she left that household and met a real good guy and looked after her and loved her, she would self-sabotage that relationship because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel you know, like mom and dad. So she will sabotage that relationship and go back to the guys that treat her terribly. That's childhood trauma, just a, a mince of it. But you have to decide, you have to unravel the childhood trauma. You know, what is trauma to you? What happened when you was a kid? There was an instance where we took a, a 25-year-old guy on and suffering heavily from trauma and abandonment because of never validated, never approved by dad. And what happened is he was in, his dad was a, a professional runner in his day, Olympics, and he wanted his son to be a runner. So at the age of nine and 10, he put him into school and there was a race. There was four people in that race and the first three people got a T-shirt. he just come forth by a fraction of a second and his dad gave him a hard time, would never speak to him. He beat him about that. He would scold him about coming forth. He would mimic him. And we found out that for the last... 14 years or so, he'd been chasing that T-shirt. And we actually had to get a picture of dad with the T-shirt and we need to, we presented him with the T-shirt and then absolutely sobbing, crying, but we addressed the trauma right there. And from that stemmed all sorts of stuff that he couldn't do as an adult. To that, that moment, but rewarded him for his effort and that gave him permission to feel victorious in that instant and to move forward, yes? 100%, that was it. He was validated for the first time with us regarding the T-shirt, and he was approved to this. Because people need approval to disregard childhood trauma. You need to give yourself permission to get well. You need to give, give yourself uh, validation and approval. And then when we get validation from approval from others, we can accept that. I don't know about you, Randy, but years ago, someone would go, hey, nice T-shirt, Dr. Rob. I go, oh, it's just something I threw on. Uh, yeah. I'd always push people away with nice comments. It took me years and years and years to learn two words. Hey, Rob, nice T-shirt. Thank you. I could have guessed those words, yes, yes. And uh, that that's an acceptance, whether we agree or not, not what they're asking uh, or or trying to say. So where where do you see yourself in the healing, the personal healing process from your past at this time? Personally or with patients? Personally. Personally. Oh, personally. Well, the, the work has been done uh, on the trauma many, 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 many years. But even today, someone will say something like the children reunited or the loss of the children, and it will still pull that cord where tears are produced. It's not as hurtful, and it's very manageable these days. But it's made me get in touch with my real feelings, my real feelings. So 
the good news about a program like this is you get your feelings back and the bad news about a program like this is you get your feelings back. So it's all about how you feel, how you feel about yourself. And I've gone through all of that. And today I can honestly say over the last 10 years that I love myself. And I've been sober, you know, quite a bit, but only the last 10 years, I've realized what love for oneself is. And if I don't love myself, how the hell can I love anybody else? So I continue. I'm always teachable. It's a, it's a you know, I'm, in, I'm perfectly imperfect is how I like to describe myself today. So, uh, yeah, just learning. Any trauma comes up, deal with it, talk to people. I have relationships. Because when I look back at my first marriage, I didn't have a wife, Randy. I had a hostage. And I kept that girl hostage for 12 years. There's a lot of trauma there in getting over that when you realize that, that uh, I stole 12 years of that woman's life. How can you give that back to somebody you can't? So you really got to do your trauma work and heal from that. And the other thing I'll say, especially in relationships, what I did is I was scarred. I was cut by my first wife and rightly so. But when I left that relationship, I was bleeding. So what I did is I got into my next relationship and I bled all over my second wife. And it never worked out. Then I went back and healed. I've got my third wife. I've healed for the last 10 years. We've been married. have a great relationship. And uh, just blessed today, man, to be in the position I am with the knowledge, the friends, the, you know. I, I, have, I have today, Randy, what, something I never thought I would have and what most people do not have. And I have enough. enough. Yes, that says a lot. Uh it, it's my it's gold dust between between my ears because it was always if I got ten grand in the bank that'd be if I got a hundred grand in the bank we did that then we wanted half a million in the bank we did that then it's like where do you stop and go I have enough and for me it was a couple of years ago and I thought yeah if I have enough I've done the car thing I've done the house thing I've done the Rolexes I've done that I've helped people I've I've helped the government I've helped uh, masters of industry captains of industry I've helped the homeless it's like I have enough today if you're not pleased with what you have how can you be pleased with having more so I love I love it obviously you're there so I'm going to back up a bit here but I want to move on to the next section, talk a little more to you professionally. Uh, and that is, I read a comment, your daughter, and I'm going to guess it was your four-year-old uh, daddy, daddy. Please stop drinking. Uh, quit drinking, whatever it may have been, which is, as I recall, the title of your book. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. Tell us about that moment. Yeah. So I stabbed my wife three times one night because she won't let me finish drinking. I call the ambulance and I call the police. And as soon as I, I call the taxi before that, as soon as the taxi arrived, I fled to Spain because I knew he was going to be arrested for attempted murder. Um, there were superficial stab wounds, so it wasn't that bad. And three months later, they decided that they weren't going to press charges. And I came home. When I got home, my wife had all the bags packed. And when I came in, she said these words, Rob, I'll love you to the day I die, but you're not going to kill our children, which I fell down on them before. And 
left him in cinemas. I, you know, I was drinking, but, uh, and she left. So I got all of my attorney and I told my attorney the first thing in the morning, get to court and get an order that brings my children back and I will give you a huge check. So he brought them back the next day. I sat him in front of the TV and I was scared, Randy. I was scared of messing this up. I was scared that I had the responsibility now, but you know, at the back of my mind, it was, I'll show them. Who do you think you are? I went into the kitchen and the thought passed my mind. Wouldn't it be great to have one, one kind of beer to celebrate getting your kids back? Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, children not being fed or changed diapers, I was in a stupor for the last two or three days. They served me with unfit father papers and I took my little babies off me. So mom grabbed the youngest, Abigail. Uh, no, sorry, grandmother grabbed the uh, youngest and my wife grabbed Charlie. And she's walking down the path holding her hand. So this little girl with this mom, you know, hand was up high holding mom's hand. And she turned around to me three times and she turned around first time as they're walking down the path and she said, daddy, daddy, please don't go. And then a couple of, path, couple of steps later, she turned around again and she says, daddy, daddy, please get better. I was crying. One of the police guys were crying. I could never understand that. It was a sad moment. And when they got to this big iron gate of the house, they see it. Mom opened the gate and she turned around one last time and said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. Three months later than that, I'd lost the children, lost my wife, lost the houses, cars, holiday home, parents, brother and sister, any acquaintances, any friends. And three or four months after that, I ended up on the streets. So when my daughter got in touch with me four years ago, uh, it was while I was writing the book. We just finished it. So I was over in her house. Uh, we were talking about, what about this book and I would like to dedicate to her. And I said, we don't know what to call it. And, and Charlie said, what about the last thing I said to you? And of course, I went, well, goodness me, what was that? And said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. My was going to be, did so she remember it? that? And obviously she did. Yeah. That was Probably years old, three, four years old. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Let's let's change gears just a little bit here, and we'll reflect back on all of that as we go. But how were you able to complete your PhD? I understand you were still drinking at that time. Yes. How did that? Play out, and, I did. you know, I on paper, I just can't see that. So explain to me how you were able to do it. Join us next week for Dr. Rob's response and a whole lot more. Not only will he provide his personal cell phone number for contact, but he also leaves us with practical advice that can change anyone's life. You don't want to miss this second episode with Dr. Rob Kelly.